0: hello and welcome to a very special holiday edition of trekcast the official podcast of the real estate council here in Dallas Texas I'm Bill San Antonio Trek's marketing and communications coordinator and today it's my turn to play Santa because we're bringing you a replay of our October Capital Markets Summit featuring HFF's Mark Gibson Gables residentials Sue Ansell Jackson Shaw's Michelle wheeler Colliers Internationals Creighton Stark the retail connections Alan Shore and and Grant Thornton's Greg Ross. The event was part of our New Market Matters Breakfast Series and covers the latest insights and 2019 projections in office, industrial, multifamily, and retail. So if you couldn't join us in October, consider this an early Christmas present or a late Hanukkah present, courtesy of the Real Estate Council. Before we get into the replay, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to TrekCast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, and follow The Real Estate Council on social media. We're on Facebook at The Real Estate Council, and on Twitter and Instagram at TrekDallas. Be sure to log on to recouncil.com and get your tickets now for our first Bank of Texas Speaker Series event of 2019. Join Trek and the Urban Land Institute on January 24th as Christopher Limeberger presents his Walk-Up, Wake-Up study on urban walkability. Following cities like New York and Washington, D.C., Mr. Limeberger will focus on the economic and social impacts that walkability can have on cities and how we can build a more walkable DFW. Once again, log on to recouncil.com and get your tickets today. With the holiday season upon us, it's also membership renewal time. Head over to recouncil.com backslash join and give yourself the gift you really want this year, a TREK membership. Gain access to educational programs like Market Matters, networking, philanthropic, and volunteer opportunities you won't find anywhere else. Stay connected to the latest trends, market forecasts, and the brightest commercial real estate minds in DFW. Once again, head over to recouncil.com backslash join and renew your membership today. You'll be thanking yourself well into the new year. And now, a replay of our Capital Markets Summit right here on TrackCast.
1: Good morning. My name is Christine Perez, and I'm editor of DCEO, and we have the pleasure of being the exclusive media sponsor of Trek's Market Matters program. Market Matters is the newest in the Real Estate Council's suite of educational programs, bringing together leading firms and decision makers in the multifamily, office, retail, and industrial sectors of commercial real estate, as well as capital markets, for unparalleled access to expert insights, networking, and high-quality educational content. DCEO is pleased to to, uh, support TRAC in bringing you insights from the heavy hitters shaping commercial real estate in Dallas and across the country, and today is no exception with our focus on capital markets. So to get us started this morning, I'd like to introduce our keynote speaker, Mark Gibson with HFF. Mark is a founding uh, partner of HFF, and he served as the company's CEO since 2014. Uh, And instead of reading you his bio, I'm just going to share some other thoughts. He and I uh, talked about this in advance. Um, (laughs) If you uh, have a moment, please do take the time to read his bio. And after reading about his industry and civic activities, you'll wonder how he ever has time to do his job. So we've known each other for a long time. He's one of my favorite sources. He's exceptionally knowledgeable and incredibly respected nationally as a capital markets authority. We're fortunate to have him with us this morning. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Mark Gibson with HFF.
2: Thank you, Christine. It goes down hill from there, so uh, it's always a privilege to be here and uh, humbling from my perspective because there's so much talent and knowledge in the room, uh, but my job this morning is really to give you a very short overview of capital markets, and it's really hard to do uh, this year, uh, primarily because you just can't soundbite it, so if we're talking about multi-housing in San Francisco, it's going to be really different than talking about office in Washington, D.C., Frankly, if we're talking about housing in Washington, D.C., it's going to be really different than housing in Dallas. But we're going to do our best to give you a broad uh, 30,000-foot view, and if you have any questions, I'm going to go through these slides really quickly. Um, If you have any questions or you need time to study, because you won't have time to really look at these slides here, um, send us an email, anyone at HFF, and we'll get you a copy of these. And what we're trying to do is just show you what we're seeing. Capital flows around the U.S., um, and give you a visual uh, from a slide perspective to help reinforce what we're talking about. And this is the data that we use, by the way, to plan for our company and what we're doing with hiring decisions or office openings or whatever. So it's, it's reasonably important data to us, and I hope you find it uh, value-add. We are public, <clears throat> so just <laughs> discount everything that I say, and you'll be great, which is not a problem for those that know me really well. All right, so I've put this in uh, themes, and we'll hit the themes at a high level, and we'll go through the slides uh, very quickly after that. So the first theme is we've grown up as an industry. Real estate is viewed as a valid asset class today, and what we mean by that is we've breached the 10% threshold from an allocation standpoint of the largest owners of capital in the world, and that means state plans, corporate plans, endowments, and sovereign wealth funds. And why have they done that? And the reason, the answer to that is pretty simple, they have discovered over the last 30 years that if you invest in great real estate and you don't over leverage it so you can get through a downturn, it goes up the next cycle. So it's valued higher coming out of an 08, 09 than it was in 06, 07. And you've seen it here and it's played out for 30 years. And they go, my gosh, if I'm a long-dated liability person like Texas Teachers Retirement System in the state of Texas, their liabilities are 30 years because it's the teacher's pension plans. So they've said, well, real estate is probably the best long-term store of value, so let's do more of that and we'll do an asset liability management strategy, and this works. So this 10% threshold has been something we've been trying to get to for a long time. We breached it. But most state plans and most large organizations are actually at 13 to 15%. So institutionally, the amount of capital that we have from those types of providers is as high as it's ever been across the U.S., which is a really good thing for us. Then we have another source of capital, which is the retail investor, which would include most of us in the room. So if you invest in a mutual fund, you're a retail investor. And today, we have a very different model than we had for the last 15 years. So the last 15 years, you had a high fee, uh, what we call the broker-dealer market, uh, unlisted REIT market, which was very prolific in providing capital to real estate for a number of years. Um, FINRA changed the laws in February of 16, which meant that if you invested a dollar, you had to show the group what the net NAV was the next month. So if you invest a dollar in February, in March, your NAV had to come out. At 85 cents because it was a 15% load. Blackstone changed that model. Went directly to the wirehouses. There are five more people right behind them, and they're raising 400 million a month. So the whole model has changed, and it's it's the next iteration of real estate becoming a mutual fund type investment for the private sector, not necessarily the public sector, but the private sector, and that is really big. Most individuals have less than 1% of their net worth in real estate. They generally have a home and a second home. And wealth managers are suggesting it should be 10%, similar to an institutional allocation. This is a vast, vast uh, amount of equity that's available to us. So capital is abundant. We have $180 of dry powder. It's an all-time record. I'll show you a slide in a minute just to put a visual behind it. And discretionary funds. So this is money that's raised and closed in and open-ended funds, and it's ready to deploy. And keep that in mind as we talk through these next couple of points. So um, it's shocking that we have the measure, uh, the measured view and the discipline that we have in real estate, which is the first time I've ever seen it, which means we have grown up. Because we have 182 billion, yet transactional volume is down. In 17, we were down 5%. Since 2015, we're down 14%. And yet the AUM, so the assets under management in our business, so the denominator, the sandbox that we all have to play in, is double what it was in 2010, which is pretty shocking. So let me just think, so we have twice the denominator to play with, and our numerator, transactional volume is down 15%. So what in the heck is going on here? Well, part of it is what I stated earlier. They figured out that real estate's a great long-term store of value, so let's do more of it. Allocations have increased, so hold periods have elongated, and that's one uh, answer for it. The other answer is reinvestment risk, so let me give you an example. We, let's say New York is a good example. New York transactionally was down 43% in 2017, <clears throat> primarily because fundamentals were declining and have been declining for three years. And so everybody sits back and goes, geez, what is going on? The buy side, despite having all this money available to deploy, says, I'm not buying into a declining market. The seller is going, well, I want what I could have gotten two years ago. And so we have this bid-ask gap. And that is a really unique period of time. We have all this money to deploy, and yet the buy side is very disciplined going, you know what? I'm not doing it. So the seller then has an option. The seller goes, well, geez, you know, do I think you're right? Or is it going to continue to go down or do I think it's going to go up? Most sellers have sat back in a market like New York and said, you know what? I love the asset. I think they're wrong. I think market's going to come through. Maybe it's supply issues or whatever it may be. We think the economy is better than what they think. And so we're going to hold it. Well, most of the time in the, in, in the past, their investors would go, no, trade at market, and let's move on. And today, the investors are coming back going, you know what? I don't know what we're going to do if you give me my money back because reinvestment risk is more concerning to us than end of cycle risk today, which is a change from a year ago. So if you give me my money back, what are we going to do? So if you like the asset and you really think it's coming back, let's hold it or let's recap it with debt. And we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. So you have... Uh, several things going on in four and five here. You have elongation of hold periods, you've got reinvestment risk, you have a bid-ask gap because investors are only buying based on metrics they can really see. So in Dallas we really don't have a bid-ask gap because we have increasing fundamentals. New York had a bid-ask gap because they had decreasing fundamentals and that's why you can't soundbite the market in general. Let me jump to the next one, <clears throat> scarcity premiums, uh, we talk about this a little bit, core assets, truly core. So best in class assets, low leverage, people are holding them longer. So we don't have many of them out there, so you do have a scarcity premium there. And then if you look at low cap X, if you think about cycle risk, because everyone is concerned about cycle risk, uh, you think about what kind of asset do you want to carry into a recession? because everyone is thinking about a recession and when is it going to happen and how is it going to happen? I want to protect my company and protect the asset as best I can. What are the best assets to own in a recession? It happens to be multi-housing, self-storage, and industrial, because it has low capex. And so that is in favor uh, in a very large way, and that is getting significant premiums across the board. Pricing, we have already talked about, is really dependent upon... Fundamentals in a given geographic area Uh, debt funds is something that do we have any debt fund folks and you just raise your hand if you're with a debt fund Okay, so debt funds are an unregulated lender Primarily composed of equity investors and this is a end-of-cycle risk mitigate So an equity investor goes geez why don't I go invest in a debt fund? We're raising three of them right now closed-in and open-ended debt funds And let's go invest because it's a great strategy. We'll do an 85% MES, We'll do an 80% stretch first. And we'll get about the same return as though we were providing equity, but we're margined down by 15% or so. So these are very prolific, and there's a lot of money being raised. They're moving into construction lending. They're moving into other areas. But the, the key here is it's an equity investor with an equity mindset. And that's very different than a fixed income investor and a fixed income mindset. So that is really happening. You'll see the prolific fundraising that we're witnessing across the US in a slide. And lastly, tax reform. We're very fortunate to be in Texas. Uh, this is not my core competency, but I can tell you for the first time ever, uh, we are seeing large investors develop strategies around six states that have no state income tax. Uh, for good reasons. They're thinking there's going to be significant migration of decision makers to these markets for lots of reasons that you all know. And so they're developing strategies around it and we're gonna be the beneficiary of that. All right, let's show you a few slides to illustrate what I've just said. So real estate's grown up, valid asset class, public market recognized this in August of 2016. So for the first time in 25 years, they created a new GICS, which is a global industry classification standard, which doesn't mean a lot to a lot of folks, but this is a big deal. And so what happened is we, real estate, the industry was included under financials. We are now brought out, and real estate is a separate GICS. So we're the equivalent of energy or health care or transportation, and now we have real estate. So when I talk about real estate being a valid asset class, that's what I'm chatting about. And something to think about here is we thought this would be huge because of this passive investing concept that people are doing today. So I many of you have read about passive versus active investors, and the passive folks really like to index. Well, now we have a real estate index. You can buy real estate, the entire industry, in an index as a result of this. And we got $50 billion more capital coming in. And we thought that would be a good thing. But what really happened is the volatility has increased so much in the public market because of passive investing, these algorithmic trading programs, that we now have the opposite effect where we have large investors going, the volatility is killing me here, and I'm going to pull all my money out from a real estate allocation out of the public market, and I'm coming back in and deploying in the private market. And just keep that in mind as we go through a few examples of that. So what we thought would be pretty great for everyone in real estate, which it was and is, There's an unintended consequence here, and that's just not real estate, that's across the board. So we're seeing the volatility increase because of those uh, programmatic trading vehicles. Transaction volumes. So I told you they're down 15%, actually 14% here. They're up year to date 11% off a bottom. Again, the denominator is doubled, but one thing to take away from this slide, if you just look at the blue bars, the blue bars are one-off trades, which is where most of us play, and they are substantially higher than 2007. So the base transactional volume is very consistent and growing. And that is a good thing to see uh, with our denominator increasing. What is really down are the orange and gray bars, and those are portfolio trades and entity trades. So look at the delta between 2017 and 2007. And keep that in mind as I start talking about M&A activity in a minute and what is happening in the public market because most of what drove that transactional volume in 07 was EOP going private, Blackstone taking EOP private, Crescent going private with Morgan Stanley. All of the large office REITs going private in 2007. In vogue, what is in vogue? Well, we talked about low capex. So those are the increases uh, across the board with our property sector. So you see apartments and you see the industrial side up. Retail is up because it has fallen so much but now people are viewing it as a contrarian strategy. We're actually quite bullish on it for a number of reasons. So it's beginning to gain traction as people going, you yeah, this is really overdone. And actually they have figured it out and doing some good things. So we're beginning to see a pop there. I've put this slide up <clears throat> just to give you a sense of where Dallas has come from. Uh, so you have Manhattan and you have LA normally on the top of this chart and we're just looking at this for liquidity purposes so if you invest in a market can you get out are investors in and out of these markets it changes it moves up and down a little bit but Manhattan and LA are twice the inventory and twice three times the population of Dallas and yet look at Dallas and where it's been for the last three years so we've been number three and that gives you a sense of where we've come from as a city from an institutional investor perspective and we have really really come a long way in the last 10 years. So that's great for all of us. If you look at the equity sources of capital, just very quickly, we talked about the public market, and the public market loves real estate. They just have an issue. And the issue is trading at discounts, and this volatility component I've seen, and you can see it in the fundraising. And how much the operators are going to the public market for capital today, and it's quite a bit down from where it's been historically, as is the entire public market. So I probably can't read that, but let me just give you a few takeaways. One is there are 40% less public companies today than there were in 1990, and for all these reasons. One is this quarter-to-quarter fixation on results instead of a long-term plan and thinking about the long-term is an issue private capital is so abundant. Why would you be public if you can raise the exact same amount of capital in scale at a lower cost potentially than you can being public? And then you have this fact of these passive investors creating this volatility and trading at discounts, so you can't really raise capital at uh, a cost of capital will allow you to really grow, and everyone wants to grow in the public market. So we, we have some issues that are there. Trading at a discount, now I told you that multi-housing and industrial are tops in the private sector, but if you look at the multi-housing business, they've traded six weeks out of three years at a premium to NAV, which means you can't raise money, can't issue equity. And you can't borrow much because you can only borrow 30%, 40%. You have to dividend out all your cash flow. So the question is, how do you get the capital to grow And that's what they've been struggling with. And so what's happened is the M&A activity is going to eclipse what happened in 2007. So go back to our transaction volume discussion, and we're looking at those entity trades, and you can see where we are. And we're in the middle of, I mean, we're really busy in this space right now. And so you're going to see a lot more of M&A transactions, public to public, public to private, private to private. You have a lot going on here, and by year end it would be it would be a surprise if we did not eclipse those 07. So I think transaction volumes over the next 12 months are going to change. And what's happening is the private placement market, because it can't really issue public funds, is going bonkers. So if you look at what's happening up here and where it's really come from, this is private placements with publicly held companies. So it's really increasing. Let me give you a couple of examples. So... Uh, we happen to be involved in the first one where CPPIB is a very large sovereign wealth fund <clears throat> out of Canada. It's the first time the sovereign wealth fund has taken a listed company uh, in the U.S. private by themselves, and so they took Parkway private. And then if you look at Ivanhoe-Cambridge, APG, and GIC, all sovereign wealth funds teaming up with Graystar to take Monogram private. And then Starwood with Milestone, again, another multi-housing trade. If you look at JVs, Um, Columbia is a large office (coughs) REIT across the U.S. We put Allianz, which is a French and German conglomerate uh, with them to give them growth capital to go forward in a JV format. The same with Madison Marquette and DDR and Blackstone and Steadfast. And then those of you in the investment management business, just to round all the discussion out here, the investment management business is changing. So if you look at what's happened (coughs) with Columbia be a thread needle, which we would think of as a prize in the U.S. In Lionstone, you look at Leg Mason and their trade uh, with Clarion. They bought Clarion. If you look at Mitsubishi buying TA Realty. So if we just stop there for a minute, the first two things are really interesting because they could have sold to anyone. So investment management platforms in the U.S. are really in vogue. For every finan- for banks, insurance companies, other financial conglomerates, they want to grow AUM in the financial management uh, Standpoint, but they chose to sell to Leg Mason and Ameriprise, and why is that? And the reason is, they have tremendous retail distribution networks. So Ameriprise is one of the largest wealth management companies in the world, as is Leg Mason mutual fund. They have this great distribution, retail distribution that we were talking about with the retail investor. That's why they. That's one of the significant reasons why they did that. And just so we put that in mind, the retail investor moves very differently than the institutional investor. So when the institutional investor gets nervous about a cycle or an asset class, the retail investor doesn't work that way. So it's a great differentiator and a non-correlated way to grow an asset base if you're an investment management company. The unlisted REITs, 15% loads we were talking about. This is what the model was. Fundraising tanked. And then Blackstone came in and said, you know, we have a new model. So they reduced fees from 15% to 2%, plus or minus on average. And we're moving forward, and you're going to see five to seven of these coming right behind them. On the institutional allocation front, I mentioned that we're at an all-time high on allocations. You can see it here at 10.3, but at 9%, you can see that we're 120 basis points underinvested. AUM doubled, so again, thinking about transactional volume, and I mentioned AUM doubling. There's the open-end fund market and the closed-end fund market, and we have doubled, and I mentioned that dry powder was at an all-time high at $182 billion, and there's the evidence of that. Just look at where we've come from since 2015 and then go back to 2007. That's where real estate has gone, which is pretty amazing unintended consequence it's really hard to raise funds so we're in the fundraising business and because there's so much equity and it's not getting deployed investors are going well geez why do i need to give you more money if i can't get the money i've already deployed out and so that's interesting that it's slowing down a little bit but we think it's a good thing on the overseas investor front we didn't talk about this but vast amounts of capital and i just want to show you that calpers is 353 billion which is the largest state plan in the u.s it would be number two from the bottom in terms of scale. And most of these folks have less than 5% in real estate today. So just think about the breadth of that market. They've been hurt. Uh, We've been hurt just because of currency issues and various other things, but similar to some domestic capital, they've already put some folks out. There are some money invested in funds, so it's hard to deploy, and that's what we're, we're showing here. 2015 was an incredible year, but you can see they're up 29% from last year. And the changes of where it's coming from are quite stark. So if you go back to 07 and you look at Europe and the Middle East and Australia as the three largest providers on the far left of the slide versus today where you see Asia, which is not going to change anytime soon, and Europe, and then you have North America. North America would be Canada primarily, and the Canadians are very keen on the US and remain very keen and they're growing uh, even today. Where it's going is also really different. So forever we said, geez, you know, foreign investors are going to stay on the coast. This bi-coastal strategy. Today, they're all over the US. And if you look at Dallas, the circle in Dallas, the, the, the dark spot is where we were in 2001. And you can see where we are today in terms of scale of overseas investors. And most of you know, but the largest office trades lately have been with overseas investors in, in Dallas, Texas. So we have gone way up the food chain relative to interest from the vast majority of overseas investors. The headwind here are hedging costs. So hedging costs have blown out 250 basis points, which is a problem. So if you're buying at a five cap, they're getting a two and a half percent yield. And this is strictly just due to it. um Interest rate differences between countries or regions. So not everyone hedges, and not everyone has a a different view of interest rates vis-a-vis the U.S., but if they do, these hedging costs have really blown out. So about 50% of the market has been hampered by this, and that's something to keep an eye on. On debt, very quickly, um, first time in history, debt decoupled from investment sales. So investment sales are down 15%, 14%. They're up 8% in debt, and the reason is Well, gosh, I don't like what the price is going to be. We think it's going to be worth more. Let's go recap it. Let's refinance it. That's exactly what's happening. And the debt market is the most robust that we have seen in 30 years. It is incredibly liquid across the board. Let me just show you a few slides on that. You can see what is driving it with the agencies. Insurance companies and CMBS up roughly 3%. The banks are down 12%. It's a little bit of an anomaly, and we'll explain that next There's some regulatory issues that are hampering some of the banks. The Fed is concerned. The book has increased quite a bit. But lately, construction loans and term loans have been paying off at such a fast pace that they're really moving back into the construction lending market and particularly in the term market, which is where they get longer dated outstandings and get paid more and get better regulatory treatment. So the banks are going to be significant sources of capital for us again. For the next 12 months, insurance companies have more money than they can deploy. They're just looking for great assets and great sponsors, so that's a great thing. Agency volumes, for those of you in the multi-housing business, you can see what's happened. We don't really see a change in the agencies from year to year, and they're very astute. And just a note here, the agencies, the multi-housing business with the agencies, Freddie and Fannie, did not lose money in 08-09, strictly single-family residential and they were making a ton of money uh, today, which is a good thing. CMBS has finally found its legs. It's a really important source of capital for us, so it's coming back in a good way. And then finally, this debt funds that I mentioned. Again, these are equity investors, by and large, and this is the unregulated uh, side of our business, and this is a new source of capital for us, and it is growing, and you have an enormous amount of interest, again, just as a mitigant to cycle risk uh, throughout U.S. and throughout the world. Just pricing very quickly. Um, supply. A lot of people talk about supply, particularly in the multi-housing space. So people go, oh, geez, you know, all of a sudden we get all of this multi-housing, urban multi-housing. It's oversupplied. Then we go to suburban multi-housing, re- regardless of where, what market it is in. But in reality, if you sit back and look at where markets, let's take Austin, Texas as an example. Austin, Texas, two years ago, the institutional mantra was oversupplied. We're not going to underwrite anything but the double concessions it's taken to keep tenants in place. And the landlord said, well, you know what, I, I don't believe you. Because I think once we get through the supply, there's really good demand here, and we think you're missing the market. Turns out they were right. So if you go look at Austin, Texas today, there's probably no better market from an institutional standpoint that they want multi-housing. And so there is this debate in some of these markets, where you may have a short-term supply issue, but given the transparency and some other things that are happening, um, it seems to balance itself pretty quickly uh, across the board. So keep that in mind. But in general, if you look at supply from where we were, where we had a tremendous black eye in the 80s, nowhere near it. And we're we're below the long-term mean. So what are some factors that could help us here? One is return on costs. How many developers do we have in the room? Okay, just yell out a number. What have your costs done over the last percentage increase over the last two years? 30%. 35. 30, wow, 35? Yeah. Let's say 25 to 35% increase in cost. What have rents done, Sue? They've not gone up that much. <laughs> they said they've not gone up that much, which is true. So return on costs? have compressed, equity investors are going, hey, I can't get paid. It's not the risk adjusted return. It's not where it was. So I'm gonna pull back. Plus, I'm a little concerned about cycle risk. So why start something now, we're going into a recession? Why don't I just wait here? So we have a silent governor on supply that is pretty interesting. And it's beginning to play out, so you can see it in the numbers. So you can see supply coming down. And this Austin effect, is beginning to happen in more markets, even where we had supply issues within an urban or suburban market. Uh, cost of debt and equity, very quickly, a lot of institutional investors pay attention to this. I'm just going to hit it very, very quickly. Essentially, if you look at the orange line, uh, that's RCA. So every sale in the United States above 2.5 million is what it represents, where 70 BP inside the long term mean spread over cap rate over the U.S. Treasury. 70 BP under the mean. If you're grief, which is institutional, we're 100 BP under the mean. And they go, my gosh, what's happening here? And I said, well, what do you think? And they said, well, it feels like 07." And I go, why do you think it feels like 07?" And they go, well, it's a cap rate. And I go, you're right, it was a cap rate. We're almost identically at the same cap rate. What was the US Treasury in 07? Well, I don't remember, it's 4.2%. What was the spread in 2007? Well, I don't remember, it was negative. So the investor market was saying real estate's a safer bet than the U.S. Treasury. That is ridiculous. We should That's stupid. Today, we're at an average of 173 BP on the Reef, and we're at 205, if I can read that correctly, 305 on the RCA number. That's a fairly significant risk premium in a very, very different model. In addition, for those of you that were in the market at 07, we were underwriting rent growth at 10%, 10%, 10%, buying at a five cap rate, exiting at a four. It was crazy. Today, it's very, very measured at 3% or 2% or 0%. And if you buy at a five, you're exiting at a six. So the risk profile here between now and 07 is really different. And then leverage is substantially less than where it was in 07. And none of us are naive like we were in 06, 07 about debt on debt on debt on debt in the single family market. So an overall comment here is there's no naivety left in the market. Everyone understands risk and everybody knows about it. It's just what are you going to get paid for? it? That's a really different view than we had in 07. And to illustrate the point, look at the far right. total, Total return is comprised of cash on cash and residual. So in 2007, 35% of the total return was cash on cash, and 65% was residual based upon those ridiculous underwriting metrics I just told you about. 10% rent growth, 10% rent growth, 10% buying at of 5, seven, 4. And today, we're 65% cash on cash. Cash on cash, which is what people want. They want yield. And 35% are residual with very measured metrics, very disciplined markets, why we have a bid-ask gap. So if anyone asks you about 07 versus today, and there's, there's a good debate here, but there really is no debate relative to the risk structure that exists today versus where we were in 07. On interest rates very quickly, if your cap rate moves from 5 to 6, your NOI has got to move, has got to grow 20% to maintain price parity. So keep the same price, you've got to grow NOI 20%. So you've got to wonder, well, if interest rates really move, how long is it going to take for my cap rate to gap out from 5 to 6%? So let's talk about interest rates. So the Fed, this is what the Fed has told you. This is exactly what they've told you. This is their dot plot. So they've said, this is what we're going to do. So interest rates are moving. They've moved quite a bit. The consumer hasn't taken it. It mostly has been lenders compressing spreads, which is interesting. But the market, the fixed income market, this is a multi-trillion dollar fixed income market is going, Now nah, we don't believe you. So the forward curve, not to get technical here, but you can go buy a forward swap or something in the derivative market cheaper than you could have before this stuff started happening. And that's interesting for a number of reasons. So we'll see how this plays out and there's a lot of implications there, but it's, it's telling to see the fixed income market having a little different view. NOI growth is important. So you can see the public market uh, statistics, they're predicting about 2 to 2.5% growth, NOI, and the private market is predicting about the same. And this is growth, so 1% to 3%, something like that. And then finally, on rates, um, when you think about can rates move and you see the Fed, what they're saying, et cetera, but when you look at the U.S., at 3 point, call it 2% today, with 318 1.9%, and you look at us versus the UK at 1.2 of France, and you kind of go, wow, that's a pretty darn good risk-adjusted return. And I think that's really healthy for us uh, across the board. So concluding here, uh, very quickly, I think I'm a little over Linda, I apologize, but um, concluding here very quickly, it's really interesting market for me. I've been doing this a long time, and what I find, I spend most of my time with financial types state plans, endowments corporate plans, sovereign wealth funds, etc they've been freaked out for four years thinking we're going into a recession tomorrow and they'll rattle off all the risks, geopolitical risks trade war risks, rising cost of capital, inflation of existing asset base, all of these risks and they'll go yeah but I have a lot of cash and I really like real estate so what are we going to do? And So that's the conversation on one, on the other end if you talk to the largest companies in the U.S., which we've been fortunate to be able to do, their businesses are operating at max capacity. They can't hire enough labor. They're investing in machinery, and it's such a different view than what we see in the financial market. And we think that that's a very healthy tension because we have all this capital, but we're not acting like drunken sailors and deploying it like it happened in 2006 and 7. It's a very measured and disciplined market. So while the asset values have increased and there are some concerns about cycle risk, it's about as good for a real estate market from a capital perspective as we have seen. So, again, if you have any questions um, and you want these slides and study at leisure, just let one of us know and we'll go from there. So thank you very much for having me. Sorry. You, know, you just can't, you can't plan it that way. I have another job. So I want to uh, introduce Greg Ross uh, um, here. So, the moderator of the discussion is Greg. Greg has over 25 years of experience in the real estate, hospitality, and restaurant and industry sectors and provides accounting, auditing, consulting services within the industry groups. He's assisted clients with real estate transactions cost allocation models, equity structuring activities, internal control evaluations, and variable interest entity consolidation issues. That's a lot. Pause right there. That's pretty good. Uh, He also assists many clients with new accounting implementation and financial reporting preparations. Experience also includes public-private REITs, real estate investment companies, construction general contractors, and other types of public and private companies, He has been the lead partner on IPOs, due diligence opportunities, and sale transactions. So, Greg, welcome, and thank you for participating today.
3: Thanks, Mark, and thank you, everyone, for having me today. Um, I guess him reading my bio makes me sound really, really old compared to that picture we have in the program today. I think that picture is when I started with Arthur Anderson back about 25 years ago, so I apologize. I'm already disappointing, so <laughs> so let's go ahead and get started. Maybe uh, my panel members, if you guys want to come up to the stage, and again, uh, being with Grant Thornton, greatly appreciative of being here today, and again, uh, proud sponsor here for the Real Estate Council, so again, thank you for having us. I think uh, as we get started, um, why don't we go ahead and go through an introduction? I mean, you guys are, are, are very well situated here in Dallas, excellent reputation in the marketplace, but go ahead and give us an introduction of yourselves, your background, your experience, and, and maybe a little bit about what real estate sectors you guys are involved in.
4: Uh, sure. My name is Alan Shore. I'm a uh, co-founder and president of the Retail Connection based here in Dallas with uh, offices in Austin, Houston, and San Antonio as well. Uh, we've been in business for about 15 years. Um, first 13 were, uh, were very, very strong by way of development. We'll get into that a little, little bit later. The last two have been a little different with, uh, with the changing nature of retail. We're a retail shop. We, um, we represent about 300 retail and restaurant clients, uh, helping them with their real estate needs uh, in Texas and around the country. Uh, we have a development division where we have built ground-up development, um, four and a half, five million square feet. Since we've been in business, we've got an acquisition group, buys, uh, redevelops, uh, repositions. And then ultimately we exit uh, uh, those assets. Uh, we've got a little merchant banking practice. We invest in uh, retail operating companies. Uh, but we're a pure consumer-based uh, retail shop and. Uh, Operating in that space today is pretty exciting. Thanks, Ellen. Michelle?
5: My name is Michelle Wheeler. I'm president of Jackson Shaw Company. We're a private real estate development company that has been in business for 45 years. We have three product lines that we specialize in. Urban industrial, which is mid-bay, multi-tenant industrial buildings, uh, limited service hospitality, and then residential. Uh, we are based in Dallas, but we have small satellite offices in the areas in which we have development activities. Currently, we have close to 3 million square feet under construction across multiple states within the U.S. on the industrial side. And then we also have a hospitality practice that we're very active in right now that we have uh, developments under construction. But we're purely a real
6: estate development company. Good morning. Sue Ansell, I'm the president and CEO of Gables Residential. Uh, Gables is a 36-year-old company. We build, own, manage, develop, Multifamily and mixed use communities around the country. Today we manage about 30,000 multifamily units and about 400,000 square feet of retail. We invest and develop in nine markets around the US, spread out uh, sort of a smile around the US Boston, DC, Atlanta, Southeast Florida, Houston, Austin, Dallas, Denver, and Southern California. And then we de- uh, manage for others in other markets as well. So we have a pretty good uh, national footprint. We have about $800 million of real estate under development. Currently, that's pretty typical for the amount of uh, activity, about 10 deals. Uh, where that development activity takes place depends on what's happening in the local cycles. We are primarily a urban core or a live-work-play developer, so uh, A, A+, plus communities, typically it's under development and believe strongly in the
7: live-work-play element for our um, design. And good morning. My name is Creighton Stark. I'm an executive vice president and I help run the institutional office investment sales and capital markets for Colliers International in North Texas. Um, We specialize in selling office product. We're one of the leading specialists in the marketplace. For product types uh, basically 20 million and up um, and uh, thank you for the opportunity glad to be here thanks guys um, Creighton,
3: we'll kick it off with you um, give us uh, a current update on the capital markets we just heard Mark's presentation he went through in pretty good detail of where we're at and, and what it looks like but from your perspective at Collier's what are you seeing you know what are we expecting to see from interest rates, capital market structure, investment community, and then maybe tailored a bit to here to the Dallas community?
7: Well, you know, I, I gave this a lot of thought. Um, this is, uh, you know, obviously Mr. Gibson's a tough act to follow. Is it, uh, respect. So if you guys want to get up and walk away from right now, <laughs> I don't blame you. Um, but bottom line is, is it appears as though all the fundamentals are in check. Um, It really doesn't seem like there is uh, any one specific sector that's overheated uh, right now in our sector of the industry. Um, Lending's grown, but leverage levels are under control. Uh, Both borrowers and lenders have been disciplined about their underwriting practices. Um, It appears as though there's not really a whole lot of high-octane debt out there that makes the The capital stacks seem a little bit lopsided. Um, There continues to be record levels of debt and equity available, although interest rates have inched up quite a bit. Um, For the right sponsorship and property, capital is aggressively targeting opportunities. And, um, you know, you look at where we are and what we have going on here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and you you gotta ask, you know, why not? This is a a tremendous place to be. Uh, Great dynamics. Um, Properties are at historical high levels uh, as far as values go um, and continue to be. Uh, Rental rate growth year over year continues to exceed expectations. We've got steady job growth. We've got a favorable Texas business climate. Um, We've got a highly talented labor pool and significant industry growth. Uh, DFW continues to be ranked as one of the top three places for uh, investors to invest in um, we're seeing a flood of new capital sources that come into uh, Dallas and Fort Worth uh, from every level um, you look at the Hertz group that came in and bought the pier one building in Fort Worth you look at uh, I mean we've got a building right now in the market for 65 independence at Independence and George Bush and We've seen um, buyers come in from every area of the country, every area of North America, uh, looking for an opportunistic type return that they can achieve on a building of that nature. Um, current overall dynamics that are in place have uh, allowed for highly desirable, uh, for a high, highly desirable investment arena. Um, There are some potential headwinds, I think, that that come into play that we have to be cognizant of. Um, You know, a few things that kind of stick out, and Mr. Gibson touched on several of those, but, um, you know, there is a a corporate debt bubble um, that we have to be aware of. Um, Corporations have taken advantage of the really low uh, levels of debt and uh, they're 50% higher leveraged than they were back in the last downturn. Um, So that's something that we really need to think about. Uh, uh, You know, a weaker global climate is kind of what we're faced at currently as well. You look at what's going on in China um, with them trying to get control of their debt, Japan, you look at Brexit and and what's going on there, you look at... um, Uh, you know a lot of these the the immigration movements over in Europe too which are affecting affecting the global economy uh, drastically rising oil prices uh, something else Uh, auto production you know with rising oil prices gas gets more expensive With the rising interest rates it's more costly to buy a car Um, so you know conversely it affects a lot of those uh, uh, a lot of the factors that are important for that Um, the tariffs uh, are also very important, um, but, uh, you know, with, with a lot of the things that are going on there, it's just going to be more costly for goods. I'd say probably, though, the thing that I want to touch on the most, which I know is in the back of everyone's mind, is uh, rising interest rates. Um, the 10-year Treasury climbed uh, to 3.2% in early October, which is the highest level since May 2011. Uh, The federal funds rate is up 2%, and uh, the Federal Reserve is expected to raise 25 basis points over the next 60 days. So those are a couple of things that we really need to think about. Um, It's real, but uh, it still does not seem to affect a lot of uh, new capital that wants to be in the marketplace and and looking to deploy. Uh, The yield curve is also something uh, that we really need to highly consider, Uh, The short-term interest rate uh, uh, could increase above the 10-year Treasury. Uh, This typically is a passage for a recession. Um, If the Fed continues to raise interest rates and the growth uh, of the economy falters, the yield curve could invert. And we all know what happens there with an inverted yield curve. Uh, But overall, I think everything currently looks good. The median GDP is forecasted to be 2.9% in 2018 and 2.7% in 2019. So we're only uh, just a few basis points off there. Um, With growth solidly nearing 3% and unemployment rate of 3.7%, I think that, uh, which is the lowest since 1969, Um, I think it's hard to say that there's any headwinds that are going to come and do anything, any uh, single headwind that's going to come and do anything to change our current environment.
3: That's great and uh, Michelle, uh, let's talk with you a bit. Um, I know you guys are are invested in many different sectors of real estate. Why don't we talk a little bit about where you guys are at now? Uh, what are you seeing? Maybe, um, you know, what are your bigger investments? Maybe your better yields and maybe if there's markets or sectors that you guys are focused in now maybe where you haven't been before?
5: Yeah, so we have done a lot in the industrial space in the last several years. As most um, people have alluded to, it's been one of the product types that's been in strong favor. Um, It's a product type that we're continuing to focus on. The struggle that we're having is available land and then also a run on construction price. So um, our return on cost, we've been able to, you know, those have compressed. But at the same time, capital that's out and available for that asset class, given that it's a low capital-intensive product type has just been readily available. Um, What we're trying to do is just really look at how do we mitigate our risk given where we're at. So what happens if all of a sudden there's abundant supply? We have seen the number of developers that have entered into this space that haven't done industrial before. Um, You're seeing that across the U.S. because it's product type that's currently in favor. in terms of additional products, I mean, we're doing some limited service hospitality, but we're also being very mindful of uh, making sure that we stay in that space. We had historically done full service in the past, but, again, when um, when we're this late into the cycle right. and given that we also are experiencing labor shortages, right. um, we're trying to be really disciplined, and that's generally not a word that you hear with a developer
8: mm-hmm.
5: <laughs> sometimes. Um but we're having to be really mindful about how do we structure things? Who do we structure them with in terms of partners? How do we think about lenders? What are we doing on leverage? How are we hedging our new construction projects to be able to you know, weather if we have some disruption? And then we're spending a lot of time on the construction cost side, and there's not much we can do about that right now in terms of shortage of labor and pricing, But. Um, You're just looking, you know, some markets, he alluded to, Mark did earlier, is that not everybody's in the same stage of where we are in cycles. And so we're looking at those markets um, that may be later stage. But primarily, I would say our focus has been on industrial and limited service at a smaller level.
3: Got it. Thanks, Michelle. Mm -hmm. Sue, affordability. You know, affordability keeps coming up in every marketplace. But I know that's critical to our economy. It's critical to our infrastructure um, maybe us talk a little bit about affordability and, and making sure that that's, that's something that we address while we're developers and then making sure we're taking care of our communities.
6: Sure, thanks for the question. It is an important question. <clears throat> From a multifamily standpoint, if you just look at the underlying fundamentals, if you look at the number of household formations compared to the amount of uh, whether it's multifamily or single family housing that is being built, is we are Totally underdeveloped. In the <clears> amount of uh, new homes that are needed, and and homes are a need as opposed to a want. Uh, but what, where that has happened, where the development has happened, has been primarily in the A space, uh, in the luxury space, because that's really all you can afford to build. The, as we talked about, in the construction prices are rising, land prices are rising, so it's <clears> very <throat> difficult. You, it's very difficult to build a new market rate or affordable uh, market. Home, multifamily home and so we really are at a fundamental um, divide within the multifamily industry there is lots of supply there's lots of supply that's coming it's getting absorbed in the luxury space but we are under servicing um, the affordable and market house uh, supply or, de- or demand we can't meet that demand so what do we do about it I mean you're seeing it come across in in different ways there's a uh, regulation that's going before California in two weeks Called Costa Hawkins, and it's a Costa Hawkins is a law that was put in place in the early 80s in California that said no city or locality can have implement its own rent control program. There was there was rent control that was grandfathered, but it said there's no new uh, rent control allowed, and they are trying to rescind that law and and allow cities and states to have their own um, laws and regulations about what rent control can put in place. Quite honestly, that's probably the worst thing that you can do for affordable housing because what it will do is it will uh, shut down. It'll make it even more expensive to deliver new supply and what you really need is more supply to address these issues. So I think as an industry, it's really incumbent upon us to come together to try to find a solution. There's lots of ways that we can address it. Some of them are gonna be public-private Partnerships. I think there is a role for the federal government to uh, play in this in this space. And then I think as uh, multifamily developers and owners, we need to come together to try to lean into this process. Because if we don't, uh, if we don't come up with a solution, a solution will be imposed upon us, which will be difficult. I had the opportunity about three weeks ago to testify before Congress on this particular topic. And what you may not know is that. Um, The cost of regulation, there's a study that was done by uh, the NAHB and NMHC together, they funded a study and the cost of regulation is about 30% of the cost of a new development. And that regulation is, look at regulations are important. We need to stay within the guidelines but there are unintended consequences of the layer upon layer upon layer of regulation. And so it is gonna be a multi-pronged attack to address this issue but it is a critical issue, and, and so I would encourage everybody that's in this industry, start thinking about what we can do to try to address it because there, there is not a silver bullet that solves the problem.
3: Thanks, Sue. <clears throat> Alan, um, a lot going on in the marketplace, a lot of changes, you know, Mark hinted to it, the, the panel members have hinted to it. Um, building a building five, 10 years ago is a lot different than today. If, um, if you're a developer, you're developing, you're investing. What is that new? What's the new building? What's the new investment look like now compared to five, ten years ago?
4: Yeah, I mean, retail obviously is in a very dynamic place today, and I alluded to it in my opening that you know the last two years we've seen uh, a lot of change. You know, there are those that think that you know retail is uh, in a real down cycle, uh, that the apocalypse is here uh, with all of these retail bankruptcies. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, you see a lot of growth, both in traditional retailers, in these new digital retailers that are, that are opening up physical stores, uh, in the entertainment space, in the medical retail space, in the restaurant space. Uh, if, you, if you look at the numbers and you can get past the bankruptcies of Sears and Toys R Us and, and, and others, and look at where the growth is. The growth is dramatic in places like value retail, the TJs and the Rosses of the world, um, entertainment, top golfs and the Dave and Busters of the world, medical retail is, is growing tremendously, uh, restaurants, these are the new anchors. And um, <clears throat> you know what I what I said, our, our first 13 years in business, you know, we we built large centers. And had as our anchors the junior boxes that, that that you know provided great credit, great stability. They were growing the Bed Bath of the world, the Dicks, etc. And that's really changed. We're seeing those retailers focused on cleaning their portfolios, slowing their growth. And what's uh, what is replacing them as as the new anchors are the entertainment concepts, the restaurant concepts, um, the medical uh, retail. And so. You know, we are, and we're changing with that. You know, we're pivoting our business to where, if we're building something today, or if we're buying and redeveloping something today, it's going to be probably in the urban markets. Um, you know, a great example is uh, what we just uh, bought with uh, with our uh, partners, uh, the Knox District, and that's going to be a longer term project, and that's going to have some mixed use to it, with some additional multifamily and some office. Uh, but we're also going to give the customer what today's customer is looking for, and that is an experience. We're going to have green space. We're going to have pocket parks. We're going to make it really authentic and walkable. And I think that's the difference between building, developing, or redeveloping something today versus uh, what we would have done five, ten years ago.
3: Thanks, Alan. Uh, Sue, come back to you a little bit on technology. You know, technology keeps coming up, uh, improvements, process improvements. But uh, you mentioned during Mark's presentation that costs have went up, but rents have not. So, um, from a technology perspective, what do you see and what do you expect?
6: Yeah, it's interesting. We're at an interesting point uh, in many things, but uh, you're seeing it. it- in everything we do, every walk of life, how technology is changing uh, what we do, and I think it's going to fundamentally change the real estate industry. When you talk about it, you know, easy things to talk about are what's happening in parking garages. You know, if we we build a parking garage within our communities today, uh, it's primarily regulated by the cities saying how many spaces you need. And we used to, if we built a project that had 1.6 spaces per Unit. I used to think we would be totally under-parked totally under and have a parking challenge. Well, the world has changed. There's autonomous, there's not autonomous cars, but there's Uber and there's Lyft, and there's lots of other choices. Today, if we have 1.6 spaces, we are totally over-parked. And so from a technology standpoint, that's one thing that's impacting us and impacting our costs, so how do we address what we're doing? If you think about everything that's happening at the, at the property level or the management level, Um, Think about blockchain technology. You hear about Bitcoin. We're not accepting Bitcoin, and I'm not sure we ever will accept Bitcoin, but um, this is fundamentally changing the way we do business. If you think about how you build and design a community, there are places where people are now using um, printers, 3D printers, to design parts of their building. It's going to fundamentally change what we do. When we are designing new product today, we are trying to think about how you can take common space and make that do one thing in the morning, one thing in the afternoon and one thing in the evening. So it's hard to imagine all the impact that technology is going to have on our business. But I think <clears throat> from the multifamily standpoint, um, the where we have had amenity wars in the past, physical amenity wars in the past, I think the amenity war in the future is driven by services and the level of services that we can deliver to our residents, which is fundamentally gonna be driven by technology. And happy to spend a lot more time on that if anybody's interested, but I'm not sure we have time for all that this morning.
3: Thanks, Sue. What we will do is we'll stop in just a few minutes and open it up to the audience. If you guys have any specific questions for the panel members, we'll be happy to take your questions. Uh, Michelle, put you on the spot a little bit. Um, You indicated rising labor costs rising land costs, um, acquisition costs are are higher. I mean, what does a business do now? I mean, what what do they do? they got the technology changes. they got all the disruptors in the marketplace. We've talked about how much change there is in just a real estate environment that varies from city to city to sector to sector. Um, You know, being the leader in your organization, how do you manage that? I mean, how do you talk with your folks about that?
5: Uh, You know, we have very transparent discussions. It's hard. I I think most people that would be in this room that are in the discipline of either architecture or general contracting or development would have the same conversations. I mean, we look at markets and say, where are the opportunities? Like Allen, you know, on our limited service uh, hospitality space, we're looking at infill locations. Where is it where there's barriers to entry and looking at a more long-term view? Or on a land side, um, if you do find a land site, we're looking at maybe a longer period of time, larger assemblage, and how do we put that together so that we can hold it during the downturn? Because coming out of the downturn, we had a pretty sizable land inventory. That wasn't necessarily the popular place that you want to be as a developer, But if you can find some great opportunities that you think that you can bank and be able to be in a position to be a first mover, those are some things that we're thinking about. Um, But we're only stretching or leaning in right now on uh, areas where we think that, um, you know, the risk, you're being rewarded for taking those risks.
3: Do you see more partnering?
5: Oh, on the industrial side, we've got great partners, yeah. And, you know, there's also a lot of um, What I would say is the capitalization strategy generally, more specifically on the industrial side, you see people wanting to have a longer-term view on that because they're having a very difficult time placing capital. So they're coming up and being a little bit more creative in terms of, oh, if they think that there is an industrial park that's a multi-phase potential, they'll take some entitlement risk Mm -hmm. with you. Or they'll look at, hey, let's see how we can capitalize this to have um, the ability to have multiple phases to be able to put into production. So, capital and structuring is becoming increasingly more important, given where we are right now. Yeah.
3: Alan, I gotta ask e-commerce, you know, the impact on, on retail. Um, a lot of I mean, we see it everywhere. I mean, the Amazon fulfillment centers popping up all over the place. You know, the technology. I mean, what are you seeing from a retail perspective? I mean, when your customer comes to you, what are they coming for? What services are they buying? What type of help are they needing now, given the changes in the marketplace?
4: Yeah, I I, I think, you know, I sort of start with the the thought that, you know, Amazon will be the largest brick-and-mortar retailer in the world one day. And there's a reason for that. You you can't just be a pure-play e-commerce retailer. And you can't just be a pure-play brick-and-mortar retailer. You have to do both really well, because that's what today's customer wants. You know, we talk about cycles. You know, I tell our guys, we're not in a, in a down retail cycle. We're in a, what I think, a very long-term retail transition. And we have to think like that. And so our, you know, our uh, brick-and-mortar retailers they want to design their stores differently. They want less space. They want to have a distribution function. They want to have an area where their customer can order online to bring it back to the, to the store and exchange it. And if you do that really well, the statistics show that you get a 27% increase in in, uh, in revenue lift. They come back, they exchange, and they spend 27% more before they leave the store. And so you really have to do both well. And um, And I think that's you know, that's where we are. There's a reason why the e-commerce retailers are opening up physical stores. And it's happening well beyond Amazon. Mm. Walmart, who I think is going to be the competitor to Amazon on the e-commerce space, has decided it can't do what Amazon's done organically. They're going to do it via acquisition. And they've acquired five or six pure play e and they're opening up stores, the Bonobos, Mod Market, Moose Jaw Mountaineering, They've got, as I understand it, uh, targets for 10 or 12 more over the next 18 months. And and they're going to build a platform to support their e-commerce business, and they're going to open up stores, and it's going to be complimentary. They're going to use their Walmart stores almost as distribution centers, the way Amazon's going to use Whole Foods. There's a reason why Amazon bought Whole Foods, opening up convenience stores, opening up bookstores, and they're not through. And so, you know, the bottom line with us is when we either are building something, redeveloping something, or just representing our clients, and we've started to represent a number of the digital uh, retailers as well, is that we have to help them, you know, do both well. And that's, I think that's the future of retail.
3: Great, a lot going on in Washington. A lot lot happening, Um, changes every day in the marketplace. from a sales transaction activity, what do we expect to see? What type of impact do you think Washington, the, over the next couple of weeks with the elections, you know, what are we expecting to see? How do you think that would impact us? And, and do you think in the real estate sector, um, you know, how does this change our outlook uh, maybe over the next six months versus the next couple of years?
7: You got to believe that just based on current fundamentals that we have in place here in Dallas, Texas, um, it's not going to change a whole lot. Um, We've got a very mature office market here. We've got current fundamentals in place uh, that are just outright dynamic. Um, We've got investors that want to be here. We've got all different capital levels of the stack that want to invest in our marketplace. Um, we've not seen anything like this historically ever, and we're going to continue to see it strong, um, regardless of what happens with interest rates or who becomes who's in charge of government. Um, it's purely an investment play to these guys. We're still one of the strongest, if not the strongest, marketplace to invest your capital, and um, we have a we have a tremendous opportunity here but we are stewards of the industry. We have to be responsible. We have to be di- disciplined, um, which we've, we've got a history of not being, uh, which has uh, prevented a lot of groups from coming back into our market because of what had happened to them 20 and 30 years ago. So um, if we continue to, to do what we're doing today and have been doing for the last 10 years, I, I don't see any end in sight, and I don't see a hiccup along the way. Got yeah. it.
3: Sue, I know we talked and uh, I mentioned culture. Uh, I know my organization is very focused on culture and being intentional about it, uh, trying to drive a positive culture. And when I was looking at Gables and your organization, you talked about your culture, your leadership, your focus on sustainability, et cetera. I looked at it as what your core values are. Tell us a little bit about your culture and your organization and how you think that drives your success
6: thanks. It's a topic uh, we're passionate about at Gables, and I love to talk about. so I appreciate the question. Fundamentally, I think we focus on on four things, and they may seem, you may say a lot of people talk about those same things, but it, it is a part of it's inculcated in into the hearts and and souls of many Gables associates. The first thing we focus on is our associates, and we want to make sure that they have an unparalleled employment experience. And so we want to be the employer of choice. I'm going to digress for a minute. You know, one of the questions you just ask about um, government regulation and how it's going to change, and one of the things that's impacting us both as a as an organization as an industry is they're, they're, it's full employment. It's very difficult to find associates, um, and on the development side, it's very difficult to find labor. So we need to come up with a sensible immigration policy within the United States to provide labor um, for all for all the things that we do. But as a result of that, we've uh, and even before, we've recognized that really making certain that our associates have a great experience within the company. Want to Once we've identified them, we want to ret- retain, train and retain those associates. So we do some things like we have a, a sabbatical program. When you've been with the company for 10 years, you're required to take a six-week paid sabbatical and then uh, every five years thereafter. So that, that is a huge benefit. We think people go away and come back fresh-minded and, and ready and eager to work. We really focus on once we've hired the associates, looking for high potential associates, and providing the right training and leadership skills for them to grow within the company. So, first step is you know that unparalleled employment experience. Second is really focusing on the customer service for our residents. Look, at they're the reason we're in the business, and so um, making certain we can build the best communities in the best locations. But if we're really not taking care of of those residents and delivering to their needs, they're gonna go somewhere else, they're gonna vote with their feet. And so that's part of, as we were talking about, amenities earlier, what is it that our residents really need, we're seeing it in all of our industries, Alan's talking about how uh, the world has shifted, and I think um, what's most important is really sort of the last mile of delivery, you hear about it from retail, and you hear about industrial, you hear about it from technology, and we are really at that last mile of delivery for our residents, so how do we deliver that service and those amenities that they want? Focusing on our investor, making sure it's uh, you know, a, a great investment with a lot of transparent, transparency and integrity. And then the fourth and probably the most important thing within the company is uh, giving back to the community. We want to give enduring contributions to the communities that give so much to us So we, uh, one of the things that we do is we uh, close our operations for a day in each city in which we operate, and we partner with a local organization, and everybody gives their time and talent that day to giving back to the community. Today, for me, that is my favorite day of the year. Uh, We are so fortunate to be able to be in the position that we are we have good jobs, we're able to take care of our families, not everybody is in that same position, and so being able to contribute back to their communities who've given so much to us uh, is is critical. So those four things uh, really drive our culture. I think a good measure of that is, uh, you can measure that, one measure of that is 10 year of your associates within the organization. I mentioned when we started the company's 36 years old, I've been with the firm for 31 years. I, I started when I was two, but I've been there for 31 <laughs> years. Uh, but I am not in the top 10 of tenure within the organization. Wow. People come to the organi- organization and stay because if you, if you try to put it in a, a single sentence or the elevator speeches, I would say we try to do the right thing. And when you, you spend more time with the people you work with than you do with your family or your friends, so it's pretty important that you like the people you work with, or respect the people you work with, and you are like-minded. And I think uh, we have been able to create that culture over those 36 years. It's something that's very difficult to build and easy to lose, so we are very intentional on, on trying to maintain
3: that. Excellent. Thanks Sue. Uh, maybe any final thoughts or comments from any of you guys before we open it up for questions?
2: No, that, yeah, that's great.
3: Audience, any questions for our panel? Yes, sir. What's your view on the opportunity
5: funds, the opportunity zones and funds that are Yeah. I can... Go ahead, Michelle. We actually are looking at a project in Las Vegas that's within an opportunity zone, and we had a, a presentation at ULI in Boston the last couple of weeks. Um, it, it's very interesting the advantages or yield return differences that are available. Um, if you're able to take advantage of those opportunity zones. I think that you're going to see a lot more capital and a lot more funds being created um, to take advantage of that tax structure. I mean, if, you know, there was an illustration that basically said if you had a, an industrial building that was within, I'll just use that as an example, if you had an asset, we'll just say an asset within an opportunity zone that was earning a 6% return, if you were able to keep that same Investment over the entire 10-year hold period, you would have 300 basis points at the end of that period. So I think it's a pretty significant tax strategy for people that have a long-term view on holding
6: assets. I, th- I think when Mark comes back next yeah. year and gives his update, the bar that will change. She talked about debt funds today. Yeah. Next year, it's going to be you know people investing in the opportunity in the zones and a critical piece that you just mentioned the difference between that and other tax structures that we've seen in the past is the requirement for the 10-year hold, the hold so the period hold is yeah, long. to to get those benefits you right. have to stay invested for 10 years right so it's it's an interesting so people
5: that have a longer term view it's going to be very advantageous and a lot of people that are in the institutional space that we're seeing have a longer term yield requirement to their investors
4: from a from a retail perspective we're not long-term holders we are studying it though, um, because we that, that's part of the nature of the change is that we may become longer term holders, but we're really early on in, in, in how we're looking at that.
3: Yeah, I, I will say from our client perspective, you know our institutional clients are very interested, mm-hmm. have called and keep calling, uh, looking for partners. you know there are the long-term holders, they're very interested, they have the capital, but again, uh, I think I think I've been on more opportunities on calls in the last two weeks than I think anything else. So.
6: I think it's a little reflective of, uh, that Mark spoke about it earlier, sort of, which is we are later in the cycle, and so people are chasing yield. They're looking for different ways to find yield. And I think in all of our industries, it's reflective. You know, the last eight years, we could hit it down the middle of a fairway and we would be very successful. Strategies are having to change, you know, 10 degrees, 20 degrees right or left. Uh, to to find that, and this is another example of of looking for
7: ways to create that yield. I'll say, too, um, we see it as a tremendous investment vehicle. We actually have a property for sale in Baton Rouge. It's a 750,000 square foot tech business park, and uh, it's a very opportunistic investment, and the level of activity that we've received since this property was stuck in or put into, placed into an opportunity zone Uh, has been staggering it's it's all of a sudden become a frothy opportunity questions
3: got to be some more questions a lot of real estate people you know i guess maybe to to end our discussion um you know, we've talked a lot about the various sectors. we talked about your individual uh, companies and your business plan. You know, what are some of those changes that you guys have had to make over the last month or so? You know, when you go into your office today, I mean, what's gonna be the first couple things you have to tackle? Just curious, Michelle.
5: uh, from a project perspective? Project, things? an issue, yeah. concern? We're, you know what, we're still, like most businesses, keeping our heads down and getting projects done that we need to get done. Yeah. Um, it's business as usual. And there's not been any major disruptors. It's just that you're thinking about things and you go to panels or discussions like this and everybody's going, okay, when's the ball gonna drop? But so far, everyone has been very disciplined. I mean, the banks have been disciplined, your capital partners have been disciplined, and developers have been disciplined. Labor and construction costs have also moderated all of that. So we're still really excited. I mean, we're all very blessed to be in Texas. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the number of cranes. We're one of those states that doesn't have state income tax. Um, and we have really benefited from strong jobs and uh, relocations to our market. So, you know, we're, we're excited about what we're doing right now.
6: I would say over the last, if you extend the period longer than the last 30 or 60 days, I'd say the last year, we are take, we're looking at investment opportunities differently. We're, we're less willing to take entitlement risk. We're looking for shovel-ready sites. We're adding a lot of contingency, much more contingency Suspects. to our um, underwriting um, and recognizing that, that yields have moderated. So being more conservative on that side in the last 30 to 60 days or, or call it 90 days the uncertainty that's created by the potential tariffs is unmeasurable. You know we're getting hearing from our subcontractors that there's a 30% increase in you name the the, the issue. Those haven't those tariffs haven't taken place yet, so who knows if it's really the subcontractors looking for an opportunity to, they're <laughs> either protecting themselves or padding their budget, and it's its uncertainty, so it's that's the challenging thing today, and, and how do you
3: plan for that? Thanks. Uh, I want to thank you guys for joining me today. Um, excellent speaking. I mean, great to be here. Uh, I can't believe I get to share the stage with all you guys. But uh, me being from Charlotte, North Carolina, and learning a lot about Dallas, this is a great opportunity as well. But again, thank you guys. Appreciate everyone coming. And maybe what we'll do is turn it over to Linda. Thank you. Thanks, guys.
8: Thanks, everyone. Uh, What a great conversation this morning. Um, My name is Linda McMahon. I'm president of the Real Estate Council, and we're really pleased that you were able to join us this morning. Great information about the market, so I think the message is things are continuing to roll on, which is great news. Uh, I want to share a very special thank you to Grant Thornton, who is our presenting sponsor for this series. Uh, They've been a great partner to the Real Estate Council, and we really do appreciate your support. Thank you. Um, And then also, DCE, our media partner. Uh, we really appreciate Christine and all of her team. We, uh, we love working with you, and uh, we appreciate your coverage of our, these events. And this, this uh, actual event will be covered in uh, the, D, uh, uh, the DFW Real Estate Review, so you'll be able to recap this uh, capital markets conversation and that, that issue that will be out later this year. Uh, I also want to thank Gables. Thank you very much, Sue, and Gables Residential, and Jackson, Shaw, Michelle. Thank you so much for your support of our event As our co sponsors, I'm glad you could join us this morning for Market Matters. Uh, We pride ourselves on trying to bring you some really cutting edge information. We've had some great programs here at BLO, and we will be uh, returning on November 29th, where we will have Lida Hill and the Chief of Police and other speakers talking about the impact of collaboration. If you know anything about what we're working on at the Real Estate Council with our Catalyst Project, It's all about that. So we look forward to seeing you on that date, and I hope you have a wonderful morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks.